0: Do bad things happen to good people. I mean, you catch a cold in the summer or, or you leave your car in the supermarket and you come back and somebody scratched it. You have a baby and that baby just won't sleep. Or, and this is the worst, you want coffee but you've run out of milk. If we're honest, little things in our lives all the time, push us to ask this question. Even if we won't say it out loud, at the back of our minds we're thinking, why do bad things happen to good people? Sadly, it's a question that the world we live in forces us to ask in a much more serious way, doesn't it? And all too often. Eighty-four people killed walking home from a Bastille Day celebration. Two random attacks in Germany in just one week. A huge bomb in Afghanistan. I could go on and on. There are so many innocent victims. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's a question that we're often driven to ask. And It's exactly the question that God's people are asking, God's people, Israel, as they find themselves defeated, uh, exiled from the land that they were given and promised. Now, we're continuing our series this summer through the book of Isaiah, and today, the passage we're looking at, I think, gives us something of an answer to this question. So, please come with me to Isaiah chapter 42. And we're going to have a look. And again, if you've got one of these guest Bibles, that's page 729, Isaiah chapter 42. Page 729. It's quite a long passage we're looking at, so we're going to read it in sections. Let's dive in and read the first. 42, starting at verse 18. Hear, you deaf. Look, you blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one in covenant with me? Blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. All of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They've become plunder with no one to rescue them. They've been made loot with no one to say, send them back. Which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Who handed Jacob over to become loot, and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them. But they did not take it to heart. And we'll pick up again in a minute. But the question they're asking is, why has this terrible exile happened to Israel? Why has it left them plundered and looted and trapped and imprisoned, as verse 22 puts it? Or... Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, they ask, and God explains. They don't. First, it's not just an accident, just some random consequence of a butterfly flapping its wings somewhere else on the earth that they find themselves in this situation. God tells them something shocking. He says, I did it. Verse 24. Who handed Jacob over to become Luke and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord? But why? Well, Israel was meant to be God's servant. And this term servant, if you've been with us, has have been working through the book of Isaiah, it connects with lots of different things. It connects with the prophet himself, with a coming rescuer, and with God's people here, here very much, It's connected with God's people, and you can see that tied up between verse 19 and verse 24. Israel's meant to be God's servant. They're meant to be representing him. They're meant to be his messenger, bringing his message to the world. But they turned away. Verse 24 tells us they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. Israel aren't a A wonderful, good, obedient people who are deserving good things back from God's hand in response. No matter what they might imagine, they are a disobedient people. They're a nation that ignores the covenant, this binding agreement between them and God. Verse 25 tells us as a result that God has poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war now. For some of us, that's a, bit, that's a bit shocking, isn't it? I mean, we think God is this guy up in the sky with white curly hair who's good at blessing and hugging and being nice to people. But he doesn't get up to much else. Well, that doesn't match the God the Bible talks about. It doesn't capture the God the Bible talks about. The God the Bible talks about is not tame He's not domesticated. He's not just there to give us a warm and fuzzy feeling. That's not the sort of God we see here, is it? Why do these bad things come to Israel? Why are these terrible things happening? As a judgment from God, as a consequence of their disobedience. God is a God of love, yes. But the Bible tells us He is also a God of justice, not to be messed with. So this isn't a bad thing happening to good people. This is, this is a bad thing happening to bad people. And the exile's more than judgment. I don't know if you noticed as we were reading, it's also meant to be a message for them. It's like it's God's megaphone, to borrow C.S. Lewis's phrase, his, his wake-up call for Israel. It's meant to turn them away from their wrongdoing and turn them back to him. But they don't get that at all. God calls Israel blind again and again in verse 18 and verse 19. Look, you blind. Who's blind but my servant? Who's blind but the one in covenant with me? Again and again. Why are they blind? It's not because they can't see. They can see. It's because, as verse 20 tells us, you have seen many things, but you pay no attention. Verse 25 says the same thing again. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. So Israel misunderstand their situation. They they, they don't get who they are and why it's happening. And they miss the message in their situation that says, turn back to me. That's all very well, but what's this got to do with you and me? I think we're in grave danger of making the same mistake. And so, misunderstanding this broken world that we live in in the same way. Why do bad things happen to good people, we ask ourselves? But when we do, we've missed something critical. We are not good people. Let me explain. You and I, I think most of the time when we try and figure out what kind of people we are, we think it's a bit like a... Uh, A heavenly account with the Bank of Goodness, and we think about it this way: we think, you know, when I do something good, when I when I help an old lady across the road, my forgiveness, old ladies. um, When I, you know, when I don't repeat a tasty piece of gossip that I've heard, when I hold back from sending a, a message full of criticism that I know I shouldn't send. Well, I think when I've done those good things, I've made a deposit. Ka ching. I've made a deposit, ka-ching. When I do, when I do something small, well, i put a few pence into my heavenly bank account of goodness, and when I do something big, ka-ching, ching, 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 I've made a major deposit. That's kind of how we think about it. And then we think when we slip up, you know, when, when something slips out, when, when I tell that lie that I, I knew, I knew it wasn't true, well, then it's just like a withdrawal. But that's okay. I've got plenty of goodness banked still. It's all right. Uh, we imagine ourselves keeping this kind of running total of good and bad we imagine stacking up these good things and then there're occasional bad things and we think well you know so long as i'm not actually overdrawn i'm still in this category good give ourselves a stamp of approval being good we think being good enough to deserve good back from the world just consists of having done more good than bad, having our good stuff outweigh the bad stuff. I mean we might not be Mother Teresa but still we belong in the category of good, we're decent people. But here's the thing, this isn't how our world actually works. Let me give you a a better picture than the heavenly bank account of goodness, a better picture might be a driving test. Now imagine there you are out taking your driving test and as you're driving around accidentally you run down a granny, it's a, you know, it's bad. You really shouldn't do that sort of thing. But then it comes to the difficult part of the test where you have to do a three-point turn and reverse around a corner and you ace it. You're like three and a half inches from the corner all the way around. It's a beauty. And so when you pull up back at the driving test center, you turn around to look at the instructor and you say, so did I pass? Thinking for all the world, well, you know, I complied with the highway code more than I flaunted it. I didn't do too bad overall. Now we misunderstand completely how it works. It's not a question of averages. It's not a, a question of, you know, does my good stuff that my bad stuff. It's a, it's a pass-fail thing. And the bad news is that all of us fail. Every one of us. None of us is good. That is what the Bible tells us again and again. No one is good. All have fallen short not one not one made it not me not you not one so when we bring this question to the table well why do bad things happen to good people we've we've misunderstood what's really happening haven't we you see bad things don't happen to good people you and i were not good people and just like israel found themselves in exile for their disobedience pushed out of their land Well, God exiled our first parents from the garden for their disobedience. And ever since, we humans, we've lived in this exile. We've lived in this this broken world, a world that's full of pain and evil, where tragedies like those we read of every day are commonplace. But this broken world is all we have any right to expect because we're the ones who broke it. Just like Israel, we don't see that our our exile is just. We don't get that we are reaping the fruits of our own disobedience. Just like Israel, our ears are open. We don't hear the message that this world of pain is giving us. We don't see. We don't see it. Now, this is the hole we're in. Our world is broken because we broke it. Is this where the story ends? No, as well as as well as bad news, and the Bible does have its share of bad news for us. The Bible has good news for us too, and there's good news in today's passage. So let's read on. We're gonna pick up again, beginning at chapter 43, page 729. Wonderful words. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob. He who formed you, Israel. Do not fear. For I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Siba in your stead, since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I'll say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gathered together. And the peoples assemble. Which of their gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right. So that others may hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, says the Lord. And my servant who I have chosen. So that you may know and believe me. And understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord. And apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days, I am He. No one can deliver out of my hands. When I act, who can reverse it? Now remarkably, into this dark and broken world, into Israel's experience of exile, out of nowhere comes bright hope. Verse 1. But now, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. Now that word redeemed, that's a little unusual, but simply put, it means freed or rescued. It pictures somebody who'd been sold into slavery, being bought back. Someone being ransomed when they've been captured. Someone being rescued. You see, God sees the prison that Israel are in, that they made for themselves with their disobedience. He sees the broken world we've made for ourselves with our disobedience, and he reaches in. He reaches in to rescue. And though this rescue might be costly, he assures us he is willing to pay the price. Israel are being summoned back into God's presence again from their exile. Embraced even, you might say, the the language becomes more and more intimate and warm. The way God speaks about Israel and as it'll turn out, uh, about us becomes remarkable. Verse 1, he says, you're mine. Verse 4, he says, you are precious. I love you. By verse 6, my sons, my daughters. From a, a, a disobedient people who are... Death to his voice, who are under his judgment, all the way to being enfolded in God's family. That you'd have to say is a good thing happening, wouldn't you? A good thing happening. Now, the text invites us to think a little bit about what this rescue looks like. Verse 2 describes God accompanying his people, keeping them safe on a journey as a result. Um, but what sort of journey is in view? Take, take a look at how verse 2 explains it. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they won't sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. The flames won't set you ablaze. Now, if we think of Israel in exile, then our natural assumption might be the journey they need to make is the journey of return back to their promised land. But if that's the case, it's not quite clear what these waters are. Particularly, it's not clear what this fire is that they're going to have to travel through to get home. And then notice in verses 5 and 6, where are they coming back from? From the east. That makes sense. That's where Babylon is with respect to Israel. From the west. From the north and from the south. Verse 6 makes it explicit. It is a return from the very ends of the earth. So, what sort of journeys in view here? Is this a, a geographic return from Babylon to Israel? <coughs> I don't think so. I think it's not geographic in nature. I think walking through the fire is our little clue here. To what it means if you look back just a few verses to the end of the previous chapter roll back up from verse 2 to verse 25 in the previous chapter how is God's judgment described there burning anger flames I think the journey that's being described here is a journey through God's judgments (laughs) A journey in which God will walk with his people. A journey which he promises won't overwhelm them, but it's going to be some journey still. And notice what it certainly isn't. It certainly isn't simply removing or cancelling the judgment. God will go through the judgment with them. All very well. That's good to understand. Good news for Israel, right? But again, what's it all got to do with us? We need to, as it were, zoom out and grasp that. It's like God's given us a little map here, a, a, a map that shows us the lay of the land. And now we need to read this map as we stand on the real streets, understanding it shows us along our way. So the map is this. Israel are in exile. That's their fire of judgment. It's caused by their own disobedience. It's meant to turn them back towards God. And God promises to to give others for them so that they can be freed and to be with them as they go through that judgment so they don't need to fear it. Well, here's the bigger picture this map shows us. The real thing. We, as humankind, we live in exile We're driven out from God's presence, away from God because of our disobedience and this fire of judgment we experience, this broken world is meant to show us this is not how it's meant to be. This is not how it's meant to be. It's meant to call us back. But amazingly, just like God gives others in exchange for Israel and to rescue them, he says he'll give another one other. God gives Jesus in exchange for us to rescue us from this judgment. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And just like God promised Israel, he would be with them as they walked through the judgment, through the brokenness. Well, he promises he will also be with us as we walk through this world. So we don't need to fear it. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will send you another advocate to help you. To be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Do you see that? We've got a little map here. Israel's like a, a, a tiny picture in a map. And we have the reality that we're standing in matches so exactly But as we think about these amazing things, it's worth slowing down and considering, why has this happened? What causes this turnaround? Because wasn't it God who sent Israel into judgment? Wasn't it God who sent us out of the garden? Why this massive turnaround? Perhaps you didn't notice as we're reading, but if you'll read it again, you'll see. There is no hint at all of Israel changing their behavior. There's nothing here that says, well, Israel started to listen. Israel started to notice. And so God turned to them. It starts with those two amazing words, but now. It's a sovereign act of God. It happens because he chooses it will. And it's the same for us. From judgment to rescue, not because we turned around and we became good people worthy of rescue, but because God came after us because God chooses to that's one more thing we see here and it's an insight into why God might have done this into what motivates him to act take a look down at verse 7 how does this description of the people he's rescuing end why was everyone called by God's name created and formed and made says there in verse 7, created for my glory. Created for God's glory. How would God gain glory from a, a rescue like this? From delivering his people from exile? From delivering us as his people from our exile? We'll see in verse 10. Exiled Israel are called to bear witness to what God has done. And you, if you... If you've experienced this amazing mercy that God has poured out on us, you too are called to bear witness. We're to be witnesses to other people. I think that's the way we naturally think about it, isn't it? Witnesses tell other people what's happened. But also here it says we're to be witnesses to ourselves. You see that in the second half of verse 10 so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. God's amazing acts, the way He turns around our fortunes, radically reshapes our world. It's meant to open our eyes. It's meant to unstop our ears so that we grasp what He's done and therefore we understand who He is And he tells us who he is in verse 11, the only God. In verse 12, the saving God. In verse 13, the all-powerful God. The reason he delivers us is so we know who he is. (coughs) Glory for God who reveals himself by powerfully saving his people. So today, the thing that shouldn't have us scratching our head is why bad things happen to good people. The thing that should have us scratching our heads is why good things happen to bad people. God's deliverance of Israel from exile didn't spring out of their goodness, but but God's amazing grace, God's amazing redemption of us His people doesn't spring out of our goodness, but out of His Perhaps you're feeling a little skeptical. You're thinking, I'm reading a lot into this. A bit of a stretch to go all the way from Israel's return from exile to God's deliverance of his people, the, the capital C church. Well, let's read one more section. One last sprint to the finish. So starting again at verse 14, Isaiah 43:14. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. This is what the Lord says, he who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together. And they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals... Honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. So, the first section we read just there describes in a bit more detail God's coming act of deliverance for his exiled people, Israel. It talks specifically about Babylon. It's a concrete and a practical declaration. And as we keep on working our way through the book of Isaiah, we'll see things get clearer and clearer as God tells us what he's going to do. It's an outline we first heard in chapter 41, and it just becomes clearer. Here's our first time we see Babylon specifically named, and we should be uh, amazed by this because this is written hundreds of years before Babylon even showed up on the scene and and took Israel into exile. This is written when the, the thing everyone was afraid of was an empire called Assyria. Babylon was just this thing over the horizon that nobody was bothered about. But God knew what was going to happen. The Babylonians will come down from their city as fugitives. The the mention of ships is is a bit confusing, but you could configure, you could imagine Babylonians coming down from their city on the Euphrates River that flows through it. But then then the text moves somewhere else. It, It turns our eyes back to the Exodus first. That amazing event where God opened a a path through the sea so that Israel could walk on dry ground. That's verse 16 here, a path through the sea. And then he used the same water and the same path. God brought judgment on the Egyptians who were pursuing them. That's verse 17, there they left. They led there no longer to rise again. Now the Exodus is the... It's the high watermark for Israel in terms of seeing God move. If you were to do a kind of family fortune style, you know, we asked 100 Israelites what was the most amazing act of God in our history, and they said, well, bing, number one would be the Exodus. It's a total no-brainer. This is the big thing that God had done in Israel's history. This is God's greatest work of redemption for his people. It eclipses everything else. So we should be shocked when we read verse 18 and it says, Well, forget the former things. Well, don't dwell on them anymore. That is very unusual. Most of the time, God says, Remember what I did, remember what I did, remember what I did. Here's the other way around forget. Why? Because it's going to pale. Into insignificance in the face of the new and greater thing God is going to do. Verse 19, I am doing a new thing. Now, what's the remarkable new thing that God is going to do? Well, if you knew your ancient Near Eastern history, you might imagine, well, the big thing he was going to do was destroying the Babylonian Empire, replacing it with the Persian Empire, and sending the Israelites back into their their home country to rebuild the temple. You might think, wow. Wow. It's almost as surprising as suddenly finding May is our prime minister. What happened there? But actually, when you compare the fall of Babylon to the Exodus, it's not that dramatic. In the Exodus, we've got a whole sea being opened. We've got 10 plagues epic enough that you have to make films about them. With the fall of the Babylonian Empire, another empire shows up and kind of has a big fight and wins. Is that really such an amazing thing, such an eclipse that we should just forget about the exodus? You won't remember the exodus anymore because remember that time when there was a fight? That that just doesn't seem to add up. Israelites would be thinking, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. How do we make sense of this? I think we have to make sense of this by seeing the new thing that's being done here. The new and bigger thing isn't the fall of Babylon and the return of Israel. That's just a a shadow, a pencil drawing, an outline, an echo of the, the real thing. And the real thing is the return of God's people from their exile that began at the garden that's what's really in view. Uh, a new Passover where judgment comes but passes over God's people. It passes over God's people because of a new and a greater lamb who was slain in their place. A new exodus where slavery is left behind forever. And we come to be in the presence of God. And this, this new redemption, not accomplished through a mediator like Moses and a a a poor innocent lamb but accomplished through God's own son Jesus perfect mediator perfect sacrifice breaks our chains to sin slavery (coughs) ends not just the exile of Israel but the exile of humankind which began at the garden ends the separation between man and God by Coming to live among us and then sending his spirit to live not just among us, but within us. Now that's radical. That's new. That's extraordinary. That's the sort of thing that you would say, Exodus. Forget the Exodus. God has done something bigger and greater. Something more wonderful. Now here in chapter 43, sure, you only get the first ripples of what's to come. You get the surprise that something new is going to happen, something so big that it's going to make the exodus look small. Are there tiny hints? In verse 19, there's a path through the wilderness rather than a path through the sea. It's it's similar but different. In verse 20, streams in the desert, that phrase points back, if you know your Bible, to Moses striking the rock at Horeb where water flowed and the people drank, and that, that points forward The Bible tells us to Jesus, who was struck to give us life. 1 Corinthians 10.4. Like tiny pointers and hints, almost like cryptic crossword clues, you might say. And they're meant to leave us scratching our heads. But as you keep on reading through Isaiah, these things don't stay cryptic. They don't stay as tiny illusions and shadows and hints. They become increasingly clear, as we'll see In the coming weeks. And our section closes with a final thing. Why? Why would God do this new and greater Exodus? Verse 21. For the people he formed for himself. That they might proclaim his praise. That's the same motivation we found back in verse 7. It's for God's glory. A people made for God's praise. And that's what we should be doing. So back to where we started. Why do bad things happen to good people? The answer is they don't. We have to get our heads around the truth. We're not good people. We're bad people. And there's nothing we deserve from this world or from God but judgment. Now we live as exiles because of our disobedience. We live in this broken world because we broke it. Why, why do bad things happen to good people? They don't accept once with Jesus and He volunteered. And now because of Jesus, good things happen to bad people like us. So we must open our eyes and see what God has done. We must bear witness and give Him praise. And if you're here today and you are not a part of God's people, why not join this? Join this new exodus right now. See the broken world we live in and hear what it is saying, it's saying it is not meant to be this way. We're people with a problem and this world's in a mess and yet God holds out His hand to you this morning. In sovereign mercy, not because you turned around, but because he is gracious. He says, will you, will you come to me? He offers his own son in exchange for you. He says, I love you. I will call you my son, my daughter. I'll give my son for you. He offers to lead you out of this broken world, to walk with you through this broken world, and to bring you home from exile to live with him forever. Take his hand today. Open your eyes and see. It's, it's not hard. Repent. That simply means turn around. Turn away from the way you've been living. Turn towards God. And then believe. You can do it now. There's no, there's no forms to fill in for this. There's no test you have to pass. There's no magic incantation you need to pull off. Just repent and believe. That's all it says. Say yes to God and then join the new exodus. And if you are already here walking with God today, then this passage calls on us to open our eyes, to unstop our ears, to see what God has done and so to be people who live to his praise and glory because good things happen to bad people. So let me pray for us.